On April 19, 1995, MacArthur Wheeler successfully executed a bank robbery near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He took one peculiar step in preparation for the heist. It wasn't securing a weapon or planning out a getaway route. The last thing that MacArthur Wheeler did before entering into a life of crime was to smear lemon juice all over his face. Incredibly, he made no other attempts to conceal his identity. He didn't wear a low-brimmed hat, hoodie, or ski mask. Just the clear lemon juice. His rationale was rooted in the belief that lemon juice, commonly used as invisible ink, would render him undetectable, perhaps even invisible to the bank's cameras. Brimming with confidence, he even went so far as to grin at each camera he encountered during the heist. It was a smash-and-grab job, and Wheeler and his partner made it out of the bank with a mere $5,200 added to their piggy banks. It took less than 24 hours for the police to apprehend Wheeler, who reportedly was left utterly astonished when he was presented with the video evidence of his crime. The would-be robber was escorted to the squad car and overheard muttering in disbelief, But I wore the juice. His idiocy contributed to the development of the psychological phenomenon known as the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is used to explain instances where an individual with limited competence tends to overestimate their abilities. Of course, poor MacArthur Wheeler wasn't successful in his attempted robbery, while Hernan Cortez was quite triumphant in his conquest of the Aztecs. And yet I see a lot of similarities in the boldness of each man's actions. It just so happened that Cortez's juice worked. Run Abdefata, host of NPR's Throughline, points out that soon violence, disease, and betrayal would all lead to the downfall of a once great city whose destruction would help propel the new world into an era of European domination, which the Europeans marketed as a sign of their clear superiority. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the new world conquests of the conquistador Hernan Cortez. Episode number four, the sacking of Tenochtitlan. On November 14, 1519, the Spanish seized Montezuma, the emperor of the Aztecs. There were two thoughts behind such a brazen act of war. First of all, the Aztec emperor would know exactly where to locate the other hidden treasure rooms scattered throughout the city. Gold was so plentiful in this region that the Mexica people referred to it as the excrement of the gods. While the Spanish had accidentally stumbled upon one great hall, they sought to uncover the rest far more expediently. That suggests to us that at this point in time, Cortes was not yet planning for a massive cultural genocide. The second thought behind the monarch napping was that the physical possession of the emperor would protect them from a reprisal attacks. 
As a hostage, Montezuma acted as their final safety measure, which in turn suggests that the Spanish conquistadors lacked confidence in their ability to carry out the conquest of the Aztec capital. Montezuma mistakenly went along with the scheme after having received a report that the Spanish were expecting at least 800 more soldiers, courtesy of 13 great ships, which had been spotted off the horizon. He was placed under house arrest, and his subsequent actions on this earth reek of interference by Cortes. For instance, the emperor summoned the lord Qualpoco and sentenced him to death for his role in killing two Spanish soldiers. This sentence was handed down despite the fact that it had been Montezuma who had initially ordered his lord to kill the foreigners. For his loyalty, Cuapoco, his son, and 15 others were burned at the stake. The book Chimalfin's Conquest is a modern retranslation of the Spanish historian Francisco Lopez de Gamarro's landmark work regarding the conquest of Mexico. The work notes that because the men had admitted their guilt, they were burned publicly in the main square before all the townspeople without commotion. Rather, the crowd stood in complete silence and fear of the new kind of justice they saw being meted out by the guests and foreigners against such an illustrious lord in Montezuma's kingdom. Those that were present for the spectacle would have bore witness to the sight of Montezuma weeping in despair. Spanish historian Frederick Ober tells us that fetters had been placed upon his ankles by order of Cortes, who, when all was over, hastened to apologize for his gratuitous affront. The act of this, in thus adding insult to deadly injury, seems incredible. But still more strange appears the fact that according to eyewitnesses, Montezuma fell upon his neck in the extremity of his abasement and despair. He wept aloud, and to assuage his grief, Cortes ordered to allow him to return to the palace. Montezuma held on to hope that his fall from grace was merely a misunderstanding. During his captivity, the emperor was allowed to hunt and travel about the city as long as he was surrounded by eight to ten fully armed Spaniards. Montezuma even passed time with the conquistadors, playing a game of Totolok. Whenever Montezuma won, his earnings were gifted to his Spanish guards, while the Spaniards playing would in turn donate their winnings to the emperor's ever-present attendants. The incident is reminiscent of Julius Caesar's temporal imprisonment by Sicilian pirates. In that instance, the future dictator of Rome spent time aboard his floating jail, joking with his captors, even famously doubling his own ransom after informing the pirates that the one they had set for him was far too low for a man of his station. Cortes, like his Aztec counterpart, likely had heard of this story within his schooling. After all, it is clear at this point that he suffered from great man syndrome, a personality fault which caused him to seek out actions which would contribute to a legacy that would remain on this earth far longer than he. The Spaniard would have known that despite Caesar's joking, the Roman had made sure to carry out his promise, that once freed he would return to crucify each and every pirate on the ship. 
the captivity went on for months, leaving Tenochtitlan devoid of its leader of state. The top-down regimented system of government did not hold up well beneath the stress. Neither did its emperor, who developed a case of Stockholm Syndrome, which refers to prisoners who begin to relate to their captors. At one point, Cortes removed the shackles and told Montezuma that he could go free. But the Aztec resisted for fear that he had already lost all credibility with his own people. He honestly believed that if he were to return to them in shame, they would murder him. Within this frame of mind, the Spanish soldiers that constantly surrounded him had gone from the emperor's jailers to his imperial guards. Historian Frank McLinn tells us that during these tense months, life at Tenochtitlan entered a curious limbo. On the surface, the daily routine went on as normal, almost as if nothing untoward had ever happened. Cortes sent out many expeditions to uplift treasure from the Aztec gold mines, but under the surface there were darker currents. Cacama the king of neighboring Texcoco moved into overt opposition to the Spanish and headed an incipient resistance movement until Cortes, always supremely efficient at espionage, found out about it and had him arrested. Facing increasing opposition, Cortes sped up his schemes to convince Montezuma to become a loyal vassal of Spain. The conquistador's efforts were designed to shield him from arguments that his acts in Mexico had been illegal, specifically against Cuban Governor Velazquez, who was still steaming that Cortes had begun his exploration against his mentor's wishes. In other words, it was to be his lemon juice that would conceal the illegality of his methods from the Spanish king's eyes. He spent long hours debating with his prisoner the merits of human sacrifice, something that would have to disappear if Spain ultimately restored Montezuma to his throne. During this time of internal dithering, divisions were said to have formed within Cortez's men, some of whom were eager to return to Europe with their riches. They had come for gold and had it in their hands, ready to spend. Had they discovered at this moment that their captain was siphoning vast amounts of treasure off the top, they likely would have risen against him in revolt. There were signs of mutiny, as Cortes was forced to imprison two of his soldiers who had nearly come to blows over the mere rumor that the treasure shares weren't being split evenly. McLinn informs us the truth behind the rumor, as Cortes collected gold worth 700,000 pesos from the mines and then gave out that the figure collected was only 160,000. The grifting was disrupted by a fit thrown by Hernán Cortés upon his discovery that human sacrifices had been continuing in private. Although he had managed to violate just about every one of the Ten Commandments, the Spanish commander did appear to be a true believer in Christianity and its mission to spread the faith. Ober notes that if Cortes had been content with temporal dominion merely, all might have been well, at least for a while. 
but he was not satisfied while the worship of the Aztec gods went on openly in the temple and that of his own deity was conducted in secret. He forced Montezuma to remove the idols, but in consequence of this invasion of the temple by Cortes, the Aztec priests had received a message from their gods threatening to leave them entirely at the mercy of the invaders unless the latter were immediately put to death. The calendar had turned to March of 1520, and over the course of the prior five months, the Aztecs appear to have finally rediscovered their collective backbone. Still, it remained in their interest for the conquistadors to just leave. Forcing them out would come at the cost of their lives, something that the Aztecs valued far more than money. Montezuma didn't seem to care about the gold that the invaders so badly desired, he gave away the locations of his mines without a second thought, and when the Spaniards asked for enough carpenters to build a fleet destined to set sail for Europe, the emperor gleefully supplied the laborers and raw materials. The preparations were interrupted by news that the Cuban governor had finally gotten around to seeking vengeance against his former protégé. 900 men-at-arms aboard a staggering 18 ships had set sail for Mexico in order to finally rein in the excesses of Cortes. To be clear, the forces weren't coming to liberate the Aztecs. Instead, they were designated to replace Cortes in order to ensure that the majority of the loot ended up in Velazquez's pockets instead. To head off the threat, Cortes left a mere 120 men beneath his lieutenant, Alvarado, in charge of maintaining his control in Tenochtitlan, in order to personally head east towards the coast. He was heavily outnumbered by his former friend, but successfully balanced the scales by wielding the weapon that had lured him to Mexico in the first place, promising his men their weight in gold if they were victorious. Our infamous bank robber had believed that lemon juice was enough to conceal his appearance. Cortez was far more clever at covering his tracks, sending an untold amount of riches designed to bribe his opposition. The gold worked to distract the company's sentries, allowing Cortez to quietly surround Velasquez's men after they were forced to seek shelter in a Totonac temple. The attack was launched at midnight, at the height of the storm. Ober writes that, despite the fearful odds against them, the veterans swept in with the storm upon the legions against them, swarming down into the plazas like hornets from their nests. Cortez himself, fighting with the fury of a demon, animated his band with the energy of despair. He and his men could expect nothing but death in case they were defeated. The conquistador came out of the battle stronger, absorbing the defeated soldiers into his ranks, swelling his forces to an astonishing 1,500 trained killers. Yet his position had never been so perilous, as word soon arrived that Tenochtitlan had finally risen up in rebellion. Alvarado, or the sun-faced man, as the Aztecs referred to the Spanish redhead, had provided permission for a massive gathering to celebrate the festival of their war god. 
You're probably assuming that this was a planned insurrection conducted to restore their liberty and free Montezuma. But that would make far too much sense in a story that is characterized most by its senseless violence. Instead, the local uprising happens to have occurred because of yet another brutal act by the Spaniards who had long ago lost their moral compass. The Aztecs that assembled were among the richest in the land and as part of the traditional celebration had worn their finest jewels. Ober writes, there they gathered in their richest garbs and wearing their most valuable ornaments. They were unarmed and probably had no evil intentions towards the Spaniards, but while in the midst of their ceremonials and utterly defenseless, they were attacked by Alvarado's soldiers. The terrible massacre at Cholula was here repeated, only in this instance there was not the shadow of an excuse for the act, except for the whispered suspicions of the Talaxians who reported that the nobles had secreted their weapons outside the walls of the palace and planned to raise an insurrection of the people. Sir Isaac Newton's third law of motion teaches that every single action produces an equal and opposite reaction. McLean writes that the massacre turned Alvarado's fears into a self-fulfilling prophecy. The Aztecs rose in a general insurrection. Alvarado forced Montezuma to order his people to stop fighting, and for a while they did. But it was apparent to everyone that he had lost his authority, and that Alvarado and the Spanish were now under siege in their quarters. Hearing of their plight, Cortes urged his Talaxian allies to put together a 3,000-man army that made haste for the capital arriving on June 24th to relieve Alvarado of a siege that had nearly starved the Spaniards out. The locals lacked the ability to fight the conquistadors directly, and thus turned to indirect means to restore their empire, choosing to close the Grand Market in a risky strategy to cut off the Spaniards' source of food and water. When Cortes angrily confronted Montezuma over the closure, the emperor claimed that he had no authority remaining and that he would be best served by releasing his brother to act in his behest. This turned out to be a mistake for the Spaniards, with McLean noting that Cortes was unaware that Cotahoc, Montezuma's brother, had always hated him and loathed Montezuma's appeasement policy. From now on, the real emperor was Cotahoc, a second siege began. An urban guerrilla warfare commenced with continuous low-level warfare. All Spanish foraging and probing parties were attacked. Food and water were short and conquistador casualties, especially wounded, mounted daily. Under a constant hail of stones, the Spanish were beginning to realize that their much-vaunted artillery was almost useless in the grim business of street fighting. Mexico now had the edge in psychological warfare, grinding down Spanish morale in a remorseless war of attrition and atrocity. Tenochtitlan was a city of 300,000, while the Spaniards could only ever field 8,000. 
With their war god in the front of their thoughts, the Aztecs taunted their foreign overlords by loudly proclaiming that the stone of sacrifice is ready, the knives of Itzel are sharpened, the wild beasts of the temple are waiting to devour you. Cortes was wounded in the fighting to reclaim the Grand Temple, but fully aware that desperate times call for desperate measures, he lashed his shield to his wounded hand and continued fighting his way up the pyramid. Ober informs us that the gates were thrown open and the cavaliers charged into the square, but the pavements were now so slippery with blood that the horses fell repeatedly. The Spanish captain was nearly tossed down the steps of the pyramid as a makeshift sacrifice to the gods, but was able to shake off two men grappling with him in an attempt to toss him over the steep edge. The temple was retaken by the Spaniards on June 29th. The next day, Montezuma passed away from wounds which he had sustained after Cortes had compelled him to give a public speech beseeching the Aztecs to stop their futile resistance. Realizing that his rule was no longer sustainable, the conquistador ordered an exodus from Tenochtitlan. He had his men use portable bridges to traverse the unique geography of the city, taking advantage of the fact that the Aztecs did not like to fight at night. Departing at midnight, they were able to travel in peace until dawn broke, at which point a woman spotted them crossing the lake. McLinn tells us that almost immediately the fugitives heard the dreaded sound of the war drum on the summit of the Great Pyramid. Aztec warriors rushed to their canoes, and soon the lake was a seething cauldron of splashing blades as the pierogies shot like arrows towards the causeway. This time the Aztecs were striking to kill, not wound or capture. What followed became known as La Noche Triste, the Night of Sorrow. Ober informs us that those who were killed outright met the most merciful fate for it was reserved for those who were made prisoners, whether wounded or not, to be sacrificed before the terrible war god. After the first alarm was given, the great serpent drum was silent for a space. Then its horrifying boom resounded again above all other sounds, at intervals, giving notice that upon the sacrificial stone was stretched a prisoner, whose palpitating heart was that instant being torn from his breast. This assurance spurred on the Aztecs to fierce energy, and the causeway was enclosed between double and triple ranks of canoes, into which were dragged such victims as could be reached, who were instantly hurried off to the temple for sacrifice. One-third of Cortez's forces were thus destroyed, but the captain managed to escape. Counting themselves blessed, the survivors of La Noche Triste mourned the loss of all of their artillery, ammunition, and stolen treasure. Perhaps the greatest military loss, however, was the death of 67 out of their 90 horses. The complete and total defeat meant that Cortes would have to somehow manage to come back without his greatest weapons. Unable to put distance between himself and the enemy, the two sides dug in their heels, with Carajayuk promising his people that he would be the emperor to rid the land of its foreign plague 
while Cortes proclaimed to his men that he still intended to conquer Tenochtitlan. This was a mere setback in his mind, despite the fact that they were harried all the way to the coast, resulting in the further deaths of 60 of his 400 surviving soldiers. The Aztecs probably could have finished him off once and for all at Otumba, but for unknown reasons, they reverted back to their traditional practice of fighting to capture rather than kill. McLinn tells us that Catalhayuk demonstrated that he was not a mighty warrior after all. Not only had he ordered his men to take prisoners instead of unleashing the natural homicidal fury in evidence during La Noche Triste, but he had also made the elementary mistake of attacking mounted men in open country. The Aztecs were deadly in street fighting or urban guerrilla warfare, but they had no answer to the sudden cavalry charge at which Cortes excelled. Nor could they deal with the Spaniards' secret weapon, most notably in evidence at this battle, the ferocious slobbering mastiffs trained to always go for the throat. Victory here allowed him to finally reach the safe lands of the allied Talaxians, whose hatred of the Aztecs overwhelmed all other reasonable thoughts. Assuming that the job was accomplished, the Aztecs returned to Notuitlan to celebrate the expulsion of the Spaniards. It was at this critical moment when disaster struck the indigenous peoples of the Americas in the form of smallpox. Professor Jared Diamond presents one of the highest estimates regarding the deaths of the indigenous peoples of America, writing in his masterpiece Guns, Germs, and Steel that as many as 95% of the pre-colonial deaths were due directly to European diseases. Smallpox was the worst of many viruses that the Spaniards unwittingly carried across the sea. Experts aren't sure where the virus originated from, but its presence as far back as 1500 BCE near agricultural communities makes us believe that it was a zoonotic disease that jumped from a domesticated animal. Historically speaking, it is the world's deadliest virus despite the fact that it was successfully eradicated in 1980 after a worldwide vaccination campaign. In its heyday, the inhaled virus had caused fever, vomiting, and a rash, which would cover the body with fluid-filled blisters. Survivors were left with pox scars for the rest of their lives, resulting in a number of European royal portraits in which the monarch is covered in what appears to be white paint, as cover-up for the tell-tale signs of smallpox. The conquistadors had traveled inward faster than the illness, but by 1520 it had arrived into Nochuitlan from the coast, reducing the city's population by a staggering 40% over the course of a single year affecting every age, gender, and socioeconomic demographic equally, the disease set off a chain reaction that resulted in widespread famine. PBS NewsHour points out that the native peoples of the Americas, including the Aztecs, were especially vulnerable to smallpox because they'd never been exposed to the virus and thus possessed no natural immunity. 
warriors were struck down by Spaniards and the pox, resulting in their replacement by conscripted citizens. But that created gaps within the interconnected economy of the empire. Soon, worker shortages prevented the distribution of goods and services, while society broke down over legitimate fear of contracting the mysterious malady that was running rampant throughout their neighborhoods. The book Chinampin's Conquest explains how disease resulted in the societal collapse of the Aztecs, noting that it is a miracle for a man to survive smallpox. Those who remained alive were so pockmarked from scratching the many large holes that opened on their faces, hands, and bodies that they gave others a great fright. Hunger overtook them, not so much for bread as the flour. Because they have no mills or bakeries, women simply grind their grain between two stones and cook it. When the women fell ill with smallpox, bread became scarce and many people died from hunger. The dead bodies stank so much that no one would bury them and they filled the streets. And so they would not throw the bodies out into them. They say the authorities toppled the houses over the dead. A Franciscan monk who accompanied Cortez detailed the effects for us in real time, describing the natives dying in heaps, like bedbugs. In many places it happened that everyone in a house died, and as it was impossible to bury the great numbers of the dead, they pulled down the houses over them, so that their homes became their tombs. No one was protected, including the newly crowned emperor, who succumbed to the microbes a month after the expulsion of Hernan Cortez. McLinn writes that as the smallpox was making inroads on the Mexica population, all this time the Aztecs were growing weaker and the Spanish stronger. That doesn't mean that they didn't clash, however, as they hunted Cortez for the rest of the year through Tlaxan territory. Not wanting to risk a head-on confrontation, the pursuing forces attempted to divert a lake in order to create a mini-tsunami that would wash the Spanish curse from their land once and for all. Unfortunately, faulty intelligence meant that their efforts had flooded the wrong campsite. It turned out to be the last chance for the Aztecs to rid themselves of the menace that was Hernán Cortés. Spanish reinforcements soon began to meet up with the out-of-favor conquistadors' forces in early 1521. By the end of April, it is believed that he had restored his forces to include 700 infantry, 120 riflemen and crossbowmen, 90 horses, 3 large guns, and another 15 mounted on small boats. He continued to use his Tlaxan allies as the forward fodder in order to complete his objectives which McLinn reveals as starve the city, destroy all war canoes, occupy the causeways, and do not waste men needlessly. He cleverly absorbed Spanish reinforcements that arrived from Jamaica and Cuba, the former of which had been meant to start their own colony, while the latter had been sent to reinforce the failed previous expedition to remove Cortez. Aflushed with the confidence of a man covered in lemon juice, 
he began the siege of Tenochtitlan from Texcoco, a city nine miles distant from the capital. It gave him a line of retreat as well as fertile land to sustain his army, which had now grown larger than when he had initially begun his conquest of Mexico. The work needed to set up the campsite was to be done by indigenous slaves, individuals whom the Spanish had captured and branded as their permanent property along the way. The beginning of the siege didn't go as planned, with Ober noting that Cortes came very near to losing his life and his army at one and the same time, for the inhabitants cut the dikes, which kept back the waters of the two lakes by which it was surrounded, and in a trice the place was submerged. The Spaniards were busy at the sack of the city, setting fire to the houses, beating off the Aztec warriors who came flocking towards them in their war canoes. But for the vigilance of a Telascian sentinel might all have been drowned. Some few lost their lives as it was, and most of the survivors lost all of their rich plunder and got their powder wet, which put them in a very bad humor indeed. Still, Cortez clung to his favorite phrase of fortune favors the bold and proceeded ever onwards. He worked diligently to capture each and every city that ringed the capital on the lake, slowly cutting it off from its traditional supplies of tribute. Once each point on the compass had been secured, he utilized 8,000 pieces of timber to construct 13 warships to complete the isolation of the Aztec capital. McLinn notes that at one battle, Cortez, a cat of many lives, would certainly have been killed if the Aztecs had been fighting to slay rather than capture. By the end of the three months, Tenochtitlan was effectively surrounded, short of food and supplies, receiving little tribute and forced to make war in the planting season. Add to this the incredible fact that thousands were succumbing to smallpox daily. By June, Cortez controlled the lake, and the 18-year-old nephew of Montezuma who had ascended to the throne was forced to call the Aztec women to arms. After finally reaching the inner causeways to the city, the Spaniards were forced to gaze upon their countrymen who had been previously captured and subsequently sacrificed high up in temples that were designed to draw one's attention. Throughout the capital city, parts of their bodies had been placed on display, including the stretched skins of their faces still with their beards attached, tanned like leather, and hung around the altars while the walls were smeared with their blood. The process of sacking the city was slowed down by Cortez's insistence to return to his base camp each evening. That meant that the battle for Tenochtitlan began anew each day, as the Spaniards were forced to fill the canals with land in order to cross in mass, only to return the next day to find out that the Aztecs had cleared the debris to once again allow the water to flow through naturally. Ober informs us that nearly 20 days had then gone by, and though they had been filled with constant fighting, the gains had been too slight to satisfy the soldiers. Finally, Cortes relented, 
and began the systematic destruction of the city. The destruction of a city is a horrific experience, one that Hernán Cortés had hoped to avoid. Even in modern times, it is extremely difficult to level a metropolis. It wasn't until World War II that aerial bombing reached its apex, resulting in the destruction of Dresden, Germany, and Tokyo, Japan. Still, the originators of the first aerial bombardment, an 1849 Austrian pilotless hot air balloon attack against Venice, Italy, could never have imagined the destructive power that came with the invention of the atomic bomb. Nagasaki and Hiroshima witnessed the immense power of one weapon whose use resulted in the bomb's creator proclaiming, I am death. 500 years before the Manhattan Project, the conquistadors had to do it the hard way, clawing his way forward through the city. McLinn writes that, Cortez ultimately realized with some sadness that in the words of a famous phrase from later history, he would have to destroy the city in order to save it. The sadness was not so much for the architectural splendor of Tenochtitlan as for his own credibility. He had wanted to deliver a beautiful city to the agents of Charles V of Spain, but now faced the reality that he would hand over merely a smoking ruin. The Spaniards faced brutal hand-to-hand combat at every intersection. And while McLinn notes that no description for the ferocious blood house-to-house combat during the struggle of Tenochtitlan could ever adequately convey the diabolical quality of a hell on earth. Of course, that doesn't mean that other historians haven't tried to describe the carnage. Diego Javier Luis of Ohio State refers to it as a war of atrocity, massacre, and systematic violence. Ober places emphasis on the fact that cannibalism became a regular feature of Aztec society during this time period. And a new Haltel poem composed several years after the fall reads, Misery is pouring, misery is felt. Tears are pouring, teardrops are raining here in Telecoco. The Mexican women have gone into the lagoon. The smoke is rising. The haze is spreading. While I don't want to reduce the human lives down to mere statistics, the numbers are staggering, as the Aztec capital had been one of the largest in the world with more than 150,000 residents, far greater than London's 60,000 or Rome's measly 25,000. It is believed that Cortez's systemic march through the capital resulted in the death or enslavement of between 100,000 to 240,000. Each advance was blocked by the sudden appearance of a large ditch or canal. The Aztecs would make a stand behind stone barriers to protect against the muskets and crossbows of their Spanish enemies. They weren't so fortunate against the Spanish cannons, however. Their appearance and subsequent damage would inevitably force the Aztecs to retreat. 
The bloodiest part of the fighting occurred whenever the Spaniards attempted to rush to the other side of the canal, while the Aztecs desperately maintained their hold on the ground before ultimately being forced to beat a hasty retreat. McLinn writes that the struggle for Tenochtitlan was the longest non-stop battle in all human history, and certainly only the titanic contest for Stalingrad in late 1942 can match it for sustained horror. Everywhere the conquistadors went, they encountered stakes, barricades, ramparts, hidden pits, and other earthworks. It seemed as if rain and hailstones pelted down continually, Such was the barrage of stones, darts, and hissing arrows. The Spanish diligently raised every single building along the corridor before venturing down the street. The act was necessary because of the deadly effectiveness of the Aztec rooftop snipers. There was no quarter given. Ober informs us that Cortez dealt with everyone as though they were his enemy. The historian informs us that it was among the wretched populace in general, the innocent women and children, emaciated by famine and dying by degrees, thousands of them herded in a space sufficient for hundreds only, that the carnage was greatest, though the inexorable warriors perished by thousands. At a signal given by the firing of a musket, Cortes let loose the ferocious allies, who slaughtered in one day 8,000 of these half-starved and defenseless wretches, and in another 40,000. All who would have surrendered were butchered by the allies, while the warriors fought to a man until the heaps of slain were so high that the attacking savages could scarcely see over them. Cortez was at the forefront of everything, regularly revealing himself to freshly disturb the defenders who would immediately fly into a rage upon sighting the leader of the Spaniards. Every soldier beneath his command that was unfortunate enough to be captured was taken to the centermost temple in order to be freshly sacrificed to the Aztec war gods. Tiring of the ongoing constant struggle, Cortes overruled his own captains on June 30th to launch an assault on the main square of the city. Nearly one year to the date of the infamous Night of Tears, his raid went disastrously wrong. In fact, it went so poorly that Cortes blatantly lied about the decision within his memoirs, claiming that he had from the beginning opposed the idea. He split his main forces in an attempt to trap his enemies within a classic pincher movement, but the streets in his portion of the city were far narrower than what the Spaniards had become used to during their slow march forward. Faced with heavy opposition, he soon abandoned his plan and attempted to backtrack in order to reconnect to his main forces. But the Aztecs had managed to cut them off by creating a large breach in the causeway. The sudden gap in the city's foundation put water at the back of Cortez's second force, pinning them down. McLinn writes that Alderate's men suddenly found themselves being tipped into the water as the fresh breach created widespread chaos. Unable to use their horses or guns in the crowded streets, the Spanish were trapped, 
and quickly grasping their advantage, the Aztecs jumped into their canoes and paddled around to the rear of the conquistadors. As on La Noche Triste, Cortes tried to help the beleaguered contingent, and on this occasion too came within a whisker of being taken by the enemy. Only the usual Aztec insistence on capturing rather than killing saved him. 52 conquistadors and perhaps 2,000 Talaxian allies were captured in the fray. The survivors would have been forced to watch from a distance as their comrades were compelled to dance before the foreigners' idols. They might have been able to look away while their friends were thrown upon the altar to have their still-beating hearts ripped out of their chests but they wouldn't have been able to avoid hearing the tell-tale drums that accompanied each ceremony. Likewise, they wouldn't have been able to hide from the horrific screams of the victims, the exhilaration of the locals, or the crunching sounds that the newly deceased made as their bodies were hurled down the pyramid steps. The victory proved to be the last hurrah for the besieged Aztecs. The young emperor failed to take advantage of the four days that Hernán Cortés spent frozen in place while contemplating his role in the unprecedented slaughter that had now been going on daily for more than two months. Fifteen days later, the Spanish managed to seize the city's last freshwater well, and with reinforcements now arriving daily from the coast, the conquistadors began to enjoy a continuous run of success, all the way up until August 13th, which saw the capturing of the emperor while he was attempting to flee the city via a canoe. The conquest of Tenochtitlan was finally complete. The young man asked to be killed by Hernan's own hand, but his request was refused in order to discover where the decimated city's remaining gold was being hidden. When the emperor refused to talk, the conquistadors burned the soles of his feet. Even after some of the city's treasure was unburied, the emperor wasn't set free, in this life or the next. Four years later, when Hernan had moved on to Honduras, the former leader of the Aztecs was forced to trudge along. Although the sources are unsure as to whether he had been turned into a fellow soldier or a slave. It was during that expedition that the former Aztec ruler plotted the assassination of the conquistador, only to be betrayed by a co-conspirator. Finally, Hernán Cortés granted the execution of his captive, the forcibly baptized prisoner's last words were a curse upon the head of his enemy, shouting, Now I understand your false promises and the kind of death you have had in store for me, for you are killing me unjustly. May God demand justice from you, as it was taken from me when I entrusted myself to you in my city of Tenochtitlan. Cortés had used the fallen ruler to convert the remnants of the Aztec civilization, throwing down their gods one last time in his conquest for the souls of the Mexica people. We will examine what is next for the Spaniard in our final episode, 
regarding the life and legacy of Hernan Cortez. I truly hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to contact the show, email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, spreading the word, and supporting the show.